You're listening to Go with Jamarla Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. We're here with Keenan Beasley, the founder of Blackbox. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's dive right in here and talk about your story. What was your path to becoming a founder and starting Blackbox? Yeah, so I think, you know, for me, I'm one of those founders that spent extensive time actually in the industry before trying to disrupt it. So uh, my career really started at Procter & Gamble where I was an ABM, um, so an assistant brand manager on Tide. So I spent two years on that, became a brand manager, then went over to lead Gillette globally. Um, Then finally, I was at Lysol before going over into the beauty space at Garnier where I was VP of marketing. Um, The interesting there is I was a 29-year-old VP. So um, at that point, I am about 15 years younger than most of my colleagues. Um, And that allows you to look at the space in the industry in a very, very different way. You know, so this is 2012, 2013, 14. The landscape had changed of marketing completely. So digital was a lot bigger and more impactful and important than um, it had been in the past. And so for me, that was native, right? Where a lot of the other CMOs or the other VPs that were maybe 10, 15 years older than me, this was a foreign and new thing, right? They didn't understand what Facebook really was or you know, some of these newer platforms like Instagram, they didn't understand the impact that it was having on, on the nature and the, the way consumers were influenced. So you know, that allowed me to look at the space in a very different way from them. And I knew I had the ability now to really create change um, and change the way the advertising industry was, was operating. Um, and the way marketing was conducted to, to, to better reach that group. You mentioned you were a brand manager for Tide. You know, how much exposure did you have on P&G's like black budgets? So, I, you know, when I was, especially as an ABM on Tide, you manage the African-American budget as well, as well as the U.S. Hispanic. So P&G at the time was spending about anywhere from 12 to 15% of their budget on African-Americans. Um, Actually, so, that sounds like a lot. Yeah. Uh, as a percentage basis. Yeah, but... Their, but their entire budget. Their entire budget. The, the, the issue that I always had with this, and, and fortunately for me, Bob McDonald was the CEO at the time who was my mentor, and, and this was a concern that I always brought up to him. It was only done as it pertained to the media spend. They weren't looking at the actual talent, right? The actual agency budget. So that wasn't... A fair split. When you looked at the market research vendors, it wasn't a fair split. Um, so it was only within the media buying space that you looked at that. And I thought there was an opportunity to really try to be, um, uh, you know, a bit more fair across the entire marketing spend uh, of, the, of the business. So it wasn't 15% of marketing spend, it was 15% of the media. Yeah, P&G has pulled back a lot on the, of their African-American spend specifically. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the, you know, the, the trend started to look like where the general market, as they call it, and the African-American uh, kind of curve, right, if you look at that reach curve, was starting to have significant overlap, where both sets of consumers were looking at the same shows. And I think it was just a poor job by a lot of the African-owned, uh, African-American-owned outlets of promoting um, the quality of their networks, the quality of their audience, and the influence that they had on on the rest of the population. Um, I think on the flip side, the general market population was saying, here's all the insights behind what we're doing across this demographic, right? And you don't need to go anywhere else. We got you here. We got millennials. We got uh, African-Americans. We have general pop. We have everyone. So market on this one platform and we can cover everything. And that's where you start to see those budgets start to slide lower and lower 
um, across the African American uh, owned uh, outlets. Is it fair to say, relatively speaking, for uh, Fortune 100 companies that P&G has been more supportive to African American media than a lot of the, the rest of the, the, the brands? Absolutely. Tell us about Black Box and meeting your, your co-founder. How did the company come together? Yeah, so, so again, you know, when I was really looking at the space, I saw that there were two significant changes. One was a changing landscape with the consumers. You know, there was this, this newer group, right, that was coming into spending power called millennials. Um, I always hate saying that name because technically I am a millennial and I would never put myself in that kind of box. Um, and I think those uh, demographic titles are kind of nonsense right now. I think it's much more at a psychographic level that we operate. But regardless, that was a point of confusion for brands. Um, the other thing that was changing was the amount of data and, and what was available. Right. Um, you know, if you look at the stats now, there was more data created last year than than the previous years of humanity. And that explosion causes a thing that we call as analysis paralysis. You can get lost in the data, lost in the numbers, and you you actually um, prevent yourself from making a decision. So given that, you know, I said we have a real chance to have a deep understanding, first and foremost, of the consumer base and the audience. And then secondly, be able to break those insights down into real actions um, to deliver great results and accelerate growth for, for brands. You know, when I wanted to do this, the first person I thought about was my business partner, Deanna. Um, and she is, you know, what I'd like to think is, is probably one of the top uh, market researchers in the industry. You know, as fast as my career accelerated, hers did right at the same rate. <laughs> so we came out of West Point, we worked at PNG together, we worked at Rekha Ben Kieser together. You know, she was a 29 year old VP just like I was, but in that, in that field of market research and insights. And, and that combination of us bringing brand strategy together um, and deep, rich insights and putting it in one platform, we knew that we could then sit right alongside the brands and develop data-driven strategies around audiences and then bring the creative to them, right? So you and Deanne, am I pronouncing it? Deanna, yep. Deanna, you're both at West Point. Can you talk a little bit about kind of, hey, you know, I acquired, you know, a certain amount of discipline at West Point. It's yeah. like a, it's different than the conventional college experience. Can you uh, yeah. take us back there? <laughs> West Point's way different than yeah. the college experience. I mean, yeah. Sometimes I wish I went <laughs> to a regular college. But, you know, West Point is, is fantastic at teaching you, yes, discipline, but more importantly, attention to detail and the ability to change gears, right? Switch from military to academics or to football or basketball. My business partner played basketball there and I played football. So, you know, in the course of a day, you have to wear three different hats. That's very similar to being an entrepreneur, right? There are days where I'm strictly in the finance mode and I'm working on investment pitches or, or in that. Then there's modes where I'm in a really creative space and I'm working with the creative team on, on a campaign. And there's sometimes it's really just the discipline of being just purely in a leadership role and trying to motivate an organization, right? Yeah. Or, or come up with the right process. So you wear a lot of different hats as an entrepreneur. And I think that's a, a skill that we really started to perfect at, at West Point. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a grueling curriculum. Um, but I think the, the, the best part about the curriculum is everyone has an engineering background. And the process of engineering and a, the ability to reverse engineer things um, I think is really strong when you're trying to lead a business because there's a process and a formula that you're trying to create uh, which enables scale, right? So That's what you, everyone's looking for. So you and Deanna are trained engineers yep. from West Point. Yep. So when you walk in a room with investors, how much does that help you that, hey, you know, we're, you know, we're, we come from West Point? 
Uh, hasn't helped too much yeah. <laughs> yet. I, I, I wish it helped a little bit more. You know, I think every investor, they look for certain pedigrees, right? And I think West Point is, unfortunately, hasn't been known for a lot of entrepreneurs, even though there are a ton. Yeah, you know, we're, you know, Vinny Viola is a, an amazing, you know, billionaire entrepreneur, right? The founder yeah. of AOL is, a, you know, is a West Point grad. So yeah. I, I think that's just not as well known. Um, so people look at us more in the sense of organizational leadership, but not from the creative or, or disruption piece. Um, which is what people expect of entrepreneurs. So, you know, part of Dion and I's mission is really to change that narrative and show that there are a lot of different skill sets that come out of the military. What does Black Box do and how are you guys different from some yeah. of the other platforms that are out there? Yeah, so the big, big thing for us is that we're end-to-end. -end. So, you know, when you look at running an, an organization, um, people are very siloed in the marketing industry. Some people only do digital creative, they only do social creative, they only do insights and analytics and maybe in only a certain portion of it. We're full, um, fully stacked, so we go from everywhere from brand development to demand creation to fulfillment all the way to measurement. And that's a really competitive advantage in the industry because we're not focused on the silos, we're focused on one end goal which is accelerating growth for our clients. Um, and we're able to put skin in the game. We're happy to match the marketing investment of some of our, our partners. And that's something that, that you know, an agency, for example, would never do. That's, that's, they're, not, they're not able to even function that way in their business model because they don't have the skill set to impact uh, change on a business. Explain Black Box to my grandma back in Watts, California. Yeah, so I, I always talk about Black Box. Simply put, there are people on one side of the table and there's brands on one side of the table and they're always trying to get to each other. The space in between is the black box, and it's what's confusing, right? How do we reach and find each other? Our mission is to really add a level of clarity um, to that space, so we're trying to give both people the tools and insights in order to reach each other. Okay, got it. And the, the platforms that most of your clients are marketing on where you can add value, yep. what, what are the, like, the five top platforms that they're marketing on? Uh, I mean, from the social channels, that's that's yeah. huge, right? Yeah. So, you know, uh, Facebook obviously is still a, a dominant uh, force. Google obviously is a dominant force. I think you're seeing Instagram really um, double down, and brands are starting to, to, to understand that platform and understand how to market and sell on that platform. Um, and the insights that are garnered from that and that they're releasing have been really, really strong. So I'd say for sure those are the top three. I think YouTube comes right in there if you, you know, kind of consider that under the Google umbrella. Um, and those are, those are the ones that are really dominating from right now. Um, everything else is pretty ad hoc. Uh, I think what's exciting to see in the landscape is that brands are really focused on the experience that their consumers are having. And, and I love this shift because as you look at the process of goods, um, you know, most products are at parity with one another. Right, I talk about Tide, and I love Tide more than anything, <laughs> just about, right? It's my favorite brand, the first brand I worked on. But the cleaning level of Tide is so good that you need a, a microscope to be able to see it, right? The average consumer doesn't even understand that. So at a certain point, you can't talk about how well you clean. It's the experience that you're giving the people that you're selling to. Um, and the more that brands figure that out, the better off they are. So I'm seeing a lot more experiential events that they're doing, a lot of pop-up shops, uh, really participating in festivals and different things where consumers can interact with the brand, right, in a one-to-one -one personal level um, to really separate themselves from the pack. If Facebook, you mentioned that's one of the popular platforms your clients use and you help them uh, manage and optimize. Yep. If Facebook's business 
was to materially decline over time, you know, would that impact your business? Uh, it wouldn't impact my business per yeah. se, but I think it would cause a, a significant pivot in the marketplace. And, and I've really been coaching my, my clients to prepare themselves for that pivot because that's a real threat to their business. Got it. If someone give you a million dollars and said, hey, you got to go long or short Facebook, you got to pick one, yep. you know, five years from now in terms of that time horizon, uh, are you betting against Facebook or would you go long uh, thinking that the company's uh, value is going to increase? Tough question. Right now, I would say I would short it, right? Just given yeah. where they are. Um, and, and that's without having great insight into their future acquisition models, right? Uh, they're active in the space. So I think Facebook will be a drastically different company in five years than what we know today. Yeah, full disclosure for the audience, I'm short uh, via puts with a 150 strike price. It's down 3% today. But on this show, we don't give a fuck about Facebook. Okay, so, uh, you know, recently, you know, there's been a lot of controversy over uh, Cambridge Analytica, you know, downloading uh, 50 million user profiles mm -hmm. from Facebook's perspective. Hey, they breached our rules. Mm -hmm. That's the only way, you know, they were able to get this information. We're sorry. We were deceived. Mm -hmm. What is Facebook doing wrong? If, if you could sit down with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg uh, and maybe kind of, you know, consult them on like, hey, what are the big things you guys are doing wrong? I think the, the, the pressure that Facebook is under is that they originally started as a, a platform for the people, right? And I think money changes that, right? And now they have been heavily slanted towards um, their, their customers, which are, which are brands, right? Which are people that are looking to advertise on their platform. And it's fundamentally decreased the, 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 the experience for the everyday consumer. And so that's the biggest threat to their business. So for me, I would tell them to get back to basics and get back to what your platform was known for, which was having just about everybody in the world on it and enjoying it. But if I'm Mark or Cheryl or the board, I'm speaking on the board, yep. hey, if we kind of balance this thing out and bring it closer to the people and what's good for society, I have to cut off, I have to cut my revenue in half. How do you respond to that? I don't think you would cut your revenue in half. I think right now they have, they have fundamentally changed the way that we see value, right? And they are in a spot where they can control the prices, right, of, of the market. And, and that's what's just fascinating about their business. So I don't think that that would actually happen. I think they would reframe and put value back on the amount of time that people are spending on their platform. And that's the shift that they're doing now, right? That's, that's the big change in their algorithm when they say, hey, we're going to reduce the amount of content that you see from media publishers and get it back to friends and family. Because what they're trying to do is, is the hope that people are going to spend more time back on the platform. If you look at all the stats and metrics that they put out in their earning reports, the one thing that went uh, poorly was that consumers spent less time on the platform. That's their Achilles heel. They lose that, their business is done. If you like what you're hearing, you could check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. That's moguldom.com. We have the latest information on tech, crypto, the business of Hollywood, and economic empowerment. Uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Let's get back to the podcast. How much revenue, if you had to guess, how much revenue do you think Facebook generates on black users in the United States a year? On black users? Black users, their, their engagement, running ads against that, their data. How much revenue do you think Facebook, including uh, Instagram, of course, generates from U.S. black users? I, I would suspect that it is probably around 15 or so percent of their total. I don't, I don't think it's going to be uh, too crazy on that in terms of how people are specifying the buy. Yeah. I think the reality of it is, is 
you know, the percentage of, of uh, their total users that are black, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but again, if I just go at population standpoint, right, you're in the 13-ish, you know, range. So, yeah, uh, I got to uh, between, uh, because I'm, I'm thinking a lot of black users actually generate more engagement. I'm within a range of about 600 million to a billion uh, across the platforms. Uh, do you 15%, think, yeah. do you think Facebook as a commercial private, uh, well, public company, do they have any responsibility if they're pulling, if they're generating so much money mm-hmm. from black consumers specifically in the United States, do you think they should be doing anything extra if they're pulling all of that out of the community? Absolutely. I mean, what type of stuff would Facebook well, be doing? Th- this for me, this is where I-, I think there's a responsibility of some of the larger companies to start to invest and not just look to acquire, but try to lift up, um, you know, some of their quote unquote competitors, right? People that are doing things for a consumer base that, that they're not specifically doing, right? We, we were talking about this just yesterday with, you know, likes of some larger companies potentially acquiring, but sometimes investing in smaller startups. I'd really love to see Facebook do this because I think what they actually need as a business is competition. But I think the way that they could give back to the community is start to promote and uplift the idea of entrepreneurship within the communities that they're starting to take revenue from. And have you seen them no. kind of talking to black executives, talking to media organizations? Well, I mean, they just put Ken Chenault on their board, right? Um, so I mean, that's, that's the first that feel, Doesn't that feel forced? Like, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, of course. Feels a bit, feels a bit forced, forced, but yeah. I think he's, he's, you know, he's a great leader and I think he's, he's amassed a great career. You know, he was, you know, retiring, and I think the timing worked out. Um, and I think he brings a lot to that board. Um, but again, I think what I would really love to see them do is is put some black entrepreneurs on their board, right, to bring yeah. a different perspective. Uh, so Sheryl Sandberg uh, was, you know, representing Facebook. She engaged with the Congressional Black Caucus uh, related to the Russian mm-hmm. stuff. Facebook is, like, working inside Donald yep. Trump's campaign, they're working with Cambridge Analytica. They're doing a lot of racial ads on the platform, essentially against immigrants, against black people, yeah, yeah, trying to scare people. But Facebook is, hey, they're writing me a big check. So Sheryl Sandberg goes to the Congressional Black Caucus. And, you know, I read a report that she says, we're going to hire an African-American after that meeting. We're going to hire an African-American. <laughs> How do you interpret that? I, I, I think Facebook's play has been very hands off, right? And, and that's why I think they're coming into dangerous territory because their position has always been that the internet is an open source and they're not there to regulate it, right? They're providing a platform for people to express themselves and talk amongst each other. And so it was, it was truly supposed to be unbiased. Then a couple things happen, right? They tweak in the algorithm and the algorithm then uh, goes right at your bias <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, and exacerbates that. And then start, people start writing bigger checks and guess what, you give them more access. And so essentially you start feeding into the bias and, and you start to be a very slanted uh, platform. And that's what they're walking into. So then just by saying, hey, I'm going to hire, uh, you know, a black executive on the team. No, that's not. In 2018. That's not, yeah, that's not, the, that's, not the, that's not the answer, right? It doesn't really. No, it doesn't, it doesn't get to the root of the problem. I think they fundamentally have to get back into what's actually behind their tech. What's in the algorithms that they're creating, right? That's what they should be looking at. How do you have, do you have some level of moral compass from and who you take advertising dollars from. And what about, you know, the big tech company saying, hey, look, we don't have a lot of black engineers like yourself mm-hmm. uh, at Facebook, at Google, because there's a pipeline problem. There's not mm-hmm. enough good 
black engineers uh-huh. out there. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But why is the, the Facebook board all white then? Because <laughs> uh, there can't be a pipeline uh, problem there, right, for board candidates. No, no. Uh, really no excuse for the, the lack of board diversity across most of these companies. So I'm not going to make any excuses for them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's something that as a public we, we should absolutely challenge. But the pipeline issue for me is, well, then invest in it. We're seeing companies that want to go into Africa, for example, in certain countries within the region, and they then invest in building up the talent. So if that is a real problem, then invest in it. You have tons of cash that's sitting there. I'd love to see them focus on STEM programs that are sitting within black communities. Yeah. Right? They're hiring engineers all the time without college degrees. They could be teaching kids right now that are seventh and eighth grade, and in, in a few short years, get them right into their uh, facilities. And you're saying, hey, I've worked in uh, marketing, I've worked in media, I, I'm now in tech and analytics. You don't really see Facebook out there kind of trying to connect with a lot of you know, black entrepreneurs, no. CEOs. You haven't really seen them out there. No. Byron Allen. Um, you know, uh, Congrats, Byron. Congrats yeah, on that one. You know, he just acquired a, a Weather Channel for $300 million. Yep. Uh, Richard Lou Dennis just acquired Essence. Uh, do you think these are kind of outliers, or do you think this is a trend where you're going to start to see black moguls kind of doing more big deals uh, out there? I think it's definitely going to uh, continue, and, and I'm excited to see what's going on right now. Um, I think what's even more exciting is that a lot of the you know black moguls are just being more vocal. I think before they were you know virtually hidden. Right, Robert Smith has been a billionaire for years. Yeah, <laughs> and no one knew about him, um, you know. And now he's much more vocal. He's had the most successful private equity company and been the biggest buyer of enterprise software for a decade. Killing it, right? track record. Yeah, is just I mean, insane. hit after hit after hit. Yeah, and no one knew him. Right, he's been a leader in that space of what we consider as this kind of Silicon Valley, you know, world. And it's been two brothers doing that. Yeah. Um, so I think the fact that they're they're out there more is people can see them and they can aspire to that. And I think that you know seeing moguls like like Byron Allen and these guys being more active and, and Richard Lou Dennis is a fantastic guy with a family run business that did you know extremely well. You know younger folks like me seeing that it is is something that we strive to. So now you're you're starting to uplift the younger generation. Um, and so that's just going to create more and more of this, right? This, yeah. this wave is going to continue, which is exciting. So, you know, you've been through the startup grind uh, for the young founders out there who don't have a lot of experience. Can you mm-hmm. talk to, hey, I have to step, in the, step into this uh, mm-hmm. seat to really understand how hard this hustle is or, mm-hmm. you know, how much dedication you needed to have to get your company off the ground. Can you talk to, to that? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, the, the, the big thing about entrepreneurship is you have to come in with a point of view, right? You have to have some, a deep level of understanding of what you're trying to disrupt. And I think some people naturally have that, right? And they're born with that just through the connections that they had. And some of us like Byron Allen, like myself, had to work for some of these bigger companies to learn the ropes. Right, so when you know Byron went off and, and started his production company, he had already been within production companies and learned how and understood what that game was, and then figured out a way to disrupt it. Yeah, and you're seeing now he's probably the most successful producer on the planet right now, which is amazing. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I spent ten years working in CPG and marketing for these big brands before I started my company. Um, so I think the lack of experience, you can gain that on somebody else's dime, 
right? You know, Byron gained experience while being paid. I gained experience while taking a salary um, before we disrupted. And then once you go off and start the startup piece, there is no preparation for that. You it, generally believe just, that, hey, you should go in the corporate world first, get some experience before you, you step into that seat. Not I, for everybody, but in not general, for everybody. Yeah, for I think, most people. I think a lot of people need that. Yeah. A lot of people need that because what that becomes, it gives you a sense of confidence when yeah. you go out there. And the biggest thing for an entrepreneur is to be confident because you're going to run up against a lot of walls. And you know that as well as I do. Right. It is not a smooth yeah. journey or, or path. And your, your, your grit, your confidence, your determination, your will is what allows you to keep going. Uh, and you need something to fall back on. If you've never seen what right looks like, very hard to know what you're going towards. Um, and I think kind of working in some of these really well-established, well-run companies and, and being able to dominate in that space gives you a lot of confidence. right? I think I'm a very confident person because of that. Uh, how much capital have you guys raised to date? About a half a million dollars. About a half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you guys have clients, you have revenue coming yep. in. We've uh, been profitable since day one. Wow. So that's, that's yeah. why we didn't raise capital. You so, guys are profitable right now. Yep. Can you talk uh, about some of your, your clients? Can you share? Yeah, yeah, some I of don't your mind. Uh, are, you know, yeah. our, our biggest clients are Samsung, um, Rekha Ben Kieser, uh, Johnson & Johnson. Um, we work, you know, really well with uh, um, P&G is, is, is a big uh, client. We have a company called the St. James, which is down in uh, the D.C. area, which is kind of a new Chelsea Piers, uh, mm -hmm. a new sports complex um, ran by two black guys. Actually, really, really cool product that they have. So those are our big ones. Uh, uh, we still work with like Mark Jacobs, uh, for example. Um, we've worked with Smirnoff in the past. We've worked with Western Union. Um, so we've worked with a lot of blue chip clients, and that's just because I came from that industry. So a lot of those folks running those companies were my peers at some point. Do you have any black owned clients? Yeah. So you the do. St. James is black. Okay, nice. Business. Okay, yep. got it. From an investor uh, standpoint or client perspective, you feel like there's been a lot of black love and support for the platform you're, you're building? Um, I wouldn't say that. And I don't think we were positioned that way. Um, so we haven't gone out that way. Um, we have now approached some of these black investors to seek uh, funding in this, next, in this next phase because, one, building an enterprise software is expensive. And, and we built that ourselves off of our own profitability. At this point now, we're looking for the acceleration. Right. And that that takes capital. It takes a boost. That's the that's the formula. So that's who we're going after um, now for the investment and explains to them really the power of the platform and what it can be. I think our uh, our challenge is that there's not a lot of black tech investors right now. That's true on a relative basis, but you're starting to see folks step up. Uh, a lot it's of changing. celebrity folks. Jay-Z is like affiliated Abs with absolutely. a couple of VC no, funds. And, and Nas, and, and, and it yeah. is changing. I think predominantly, though, we've been investors in very physical things, right? Or in creative yeah. spaces. We invest in movies. We invest in restaurants. We invest in real estate. We haven't invested a lot in in tech, but we're starting to see that change, and that's exciting. It's exciting for my business, um, and especially as people now realize the multiples that exist in that space. Right. Uh, you know, there's not too many industries that see double digit, you know, on revenue uh, multipliers. So you, your business scales up to one hundred million dollars of revenue. Mm -hmm. What would what could the margins look like uh, once you get there? Yeah, you're, you're still going to be at a 60 plus margin. Right. You probably uh, and it really depends on the mix of, of services and pure tech plays. But you're going to be anywhere from 60 to 80 percent. Do you feel like uh, your business is at a disadvantage being based in New York? I don't think so. Um, and, and, and the reason I don't think so is because, you know, our business is, is based off of being close to both culture and, and clients, right? So there's not a lot of CPG companies that are sitting in Silicon Valley, 
So that's definitely not the place for me to be. In terms of your experience uh, leading Black Box, what have been your biggest uh, mistakes or, or, or regrets? I think biggest mistake I, I made was, was not taking capital sooner. That was from uh, just a lack of commitment to the technology uh, from the onset, right? And um, I, I think as a young black entrepreneur, I was hell-bent on ensuring that we made money, right? That yeah. we were profitable. Instead of being dead set on the idea and the concept of it and scaling just that. Well, um, you're, you're, you're profitable now, obviously, you, you, you we were possibly possibly could have been growing uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, faster with the money, but do you think there's a good chance you may have not been around where the VC wants you to go and kind of do all these crazy things so you could be a unicorn too oh, fast. Always, always the risk. Yeah. Always the risk. But you, you feel like, you know, net, net, you should have took capital early on. I think so. Yeah. Is that because, hey, some folks kind of were able to take some segments of our market. We couldn't move fast enough and big enough. Yeah. And they, they, they took the chunks of that market. They did. I, yeah. I, I think, you know, what's, what's interesting about us is I think we were a bit ahead of the market, to be honest, when we started. Right. So four years ago, talking about an end to end solution, the technology wasn't quite there yet. Python coding wasn't as popular as it is now. Um, so the level of machine learning and AI that's needed to run a business like mine was either expensive or very hard to find. Right. The individuals that could even run it. And I think it just took us some time to get to that point where now it is a lot easier and we do see it as the future. Um, and now we're able to truly live our mission. Um, like I said, I think. Being early, though, is, is good if you can simplify the story in a way that investors understand it. And I think that's just the art of storytelling. And that's something that I think, uh, you know, something I, I needed to improve on back then. Do you see any difference of, uh, uh, between pitching to a New York investor <laughs> and a Silicon Valley investor? Definitely. I think, the, I think the Silicon Valley investors are much more open to uh, concepts. Uh, around technology, where a New York investor is really looking for traction first and foremost. And so they just want to see, you know, there's a saying, are the dogs eating the dog food? They're looking for that. It's very um, almost transactional in a way, where in Silicon Valley, they get the idea of disruption and how long it can take, and they're looking to stimulate it. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a slightly different mindset. Um, and, and yeah, you have to pitch it in different ways, for sure. I want to thank Keenan uh, Beasley for coming on Go. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamal Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.